This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. It's good to have you with us today. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. Here is a puzzle, a bit of a conundrum. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, God, our Savior, will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. All men. That's God's great desire. He made man for this purpose. Second Peter 3 and verse 9 says, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, in Revelation 12 and verse 9, God says the whole world is deceived. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul says Satan is the god of this world. In 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks of false ministers who act like true apostles. They're copying Satan, who presents himself as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul calls people in this world infidels, and he tells God's people, separate yourself from them because they're unclean. Now, does this seem strange? God wants to save all men, and yet he tells his people, come out and be separate from them. Here's another reality. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote about this in his book, Mystery of the Ages, talking about the origin of modern civilization. There's a chapter in there called The Mystery of Civilization. And then there's a chapter on the mystery of man, and it talks about how God expelled Adam from the Garden of Eden, and he sentenced man to 6,000 years of being cut off. Mr. Armstrong wrote, God said, in effect, you have made the decision for yourself and the world that shall spring from you. You have rejected me as the basic source of knowledge. You have rebelled against my command and my government. Therefore, I sentence you and the world you shall beget to 6,000 years of being cut off from access to me and my spirit. So God has cut this world off. He has turned them over to the devil. Mr. Armstrong continues, Go therefore, Adam, and all your progeny that shall form the world, produce your own fund of knowledge, decide for yourself what is good and what is evil, produce your own educational systems and means of disseminating knowledge, as your God, Satan, shall mislead you. In all this, Satan will deceive your world with his attitude of self-centeredness, with vanity, lust, and greed, jealousy, and envy, competition, and strife, and violence, and wars, rebellion against me and my law of love, during this 6,000 years, when I myself shall cut them off from me, they shall not be eternally judged, only as they sow during their lifetimes, they shall reap." So again, God wants all men to be saved, and yet he cut them off. And he said, you figure it out and you pay the consequences. Now here's another quote that adds an interesting dimension to this puzzle. Mr. Armstrong wrote this in the United States and Britain in Prophecy. It is undeniable its history from Genesis to Revelation is primarily the history of one nation or people, the Israelites. Other nations are mentioned only insofar as they come into contact with Israel. All its prophecy, too, pertains primarily to this people, Israel. 
and to other nations only insofar as they come into contact with Israel. The Bible tells of these Israelites and their God. It was inspired by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, committed to writing through Israelites exclusively and preserved until after the New Testament was written by these Israelites. In its sacred passages, we read that all the promises and the covenants of God, all the sonship and the glory belong solely to Israel. So Israel is at the heart of the Bible and everything God is doing. Now, God wants to save all men. And yet he called one nation and gave them his law and wrote a book about that one people and pretty well ignored everyone else. So is this not a puzzle? Is this not a conundrum? It's, it's all true. This world is cut off. God is allowing them to reap what they sow apart from him. But he does want to save all men. And the fact that they are cut off does not mean that God is hands off what is happening in this world. Actually, God is deeply involved in world events. He is deeply involved in human history. He is not hands off. In fact, he is actively shaping events according to his purposes, and he has been throughout human history, even in a world cut off from access to his Holy Spirit, a world that he is not calling today. There are plenty of cases in history where it is obvious that God intervened to serve his purposes, and there are countless instances where Things happen in a certain way where you have to ask, well, how much was God involved in this? Let me just give you one example. Think about a great man like Winston Churchill, who essentially saved the world from Nazi tyranny. Revelation 17 prophesies of seven resurrections of the Holy Roman Empire. And verse 10 in that chapter says, five are fallen and one is, and the other is not yet come. Now, Gerald Flurry explains in his booklet, Daniel Unlocks Revelation, that this verse is specifically prophesying of the time of the sixth of those seven resurrections, a time when Herbert W. Armstrong was on the scene warning during that sixth resurrection, Hitler and the Axis powers of World War II. So God prophesied this. He knew in advance that this menace, this Nazi menace would rise up, and he knew that it would be defeated. That is outlined there in prophecy. Now, God also prophesied in Ezekiel 33 about the people setting up a watchman to warn of dangers. And Mr. Flurry has said he believes that is a specific prophecy of Winston Churchill in World War II. So you think about those two prophecies, and God knew the broad outlines of what would happen in World War II. Those prophecies show that. So the question is, how far in advance was God preparing that Ezekiel 33 watchman for that job. 
Now you look at the life of Winston Churchill and it's fascinating to study and you see several instances in his life that that really do look like divine intervention where God literally saved his life. I'll just read a quote to you from William Manchester's biography, The Last Lion. During World War I, Manchester wrote repeatedly when he was elsewhere on the line, his frail sandbagged shelter was demolished by direct hits. He felt shielded by mysterious intervention, believing that, and this is quoting Churchill, chance, fortune, luck, destiny, fate, providence seem to me only different ways of expressing the same thing, to wit, that a man's own contribution to his life story is continually dominated by an external superior power. That's what Churchill said about his own life. God protected that man, and Churchill could recognize that. He wasn't a religious man, but he could sense God directing his life and other events. And that is great insight, and it's really true of the whole world, that our story is continually dominated by an external superior power. This is the same man who said before the United States Congress on December 26, 1941, I will say that he must indeed have a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39 says this, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there anything that can deliver out of my hand. God has the power of life and death. He has the power of wounding and healing. If God wants someone to live, if God wants someone to prosper, if God wants someone to rule, or if he wants someone to fall or to be shoved aside from history or to die and be forgotten, God can do that. God clearly has and clearly uses this power to shape history as he wishes for his reasons. Let's look at another example briefly. The same thing happened repeatedly to America's first president, George Washington. Early in his public service, George Washington was given the job of traveling 500 miles through a forest that was filled with Indians and then negotiating with them. At one point, he and another man were moving on foot and they found an Indian village and they got an Indian guide to lead them. And as they were moving, this Indian ran ahead 15 paces, turned and shot directly at George Washington and he missed. I'm sure there have been countless times in history where God caused a marksman to miss his target or a gun to miss fire. Not long after that, George Washington was with the British military. They were ambushed by Indians. I'll read a bit from James Flexner's book, The Indispensable Man. The officers on their horses were perfect targets. One after another, they went down. 
Washington's horse was shot from under him. He leaped on another. Bullets tore his coat. Washington's second horse crumpled. His hat was shot off. (laughs) There are bullets flying everywhere. How was this man not killed? Now, think practically about how God would protect a man in a gun battle with bullets flying. How many Indians in this situation would have had George Washington in range through the course of that battle? He had two horses shot out from under him. Bullets tore his coat. Bullets knocked off his hat. How does this happen? Did God have angels pushing the Indians' guns off target? Or were they moving George Washington out of the way? Were they redirecting bullets in the air, these bullets that are easily traveling 700 to 1,000 feet per second? I, I do not know. I do not know. Angels inhabit eternity with God, so maybe they can slow down time and deflect bullets. But at one point after leading a raid on French troops, George Washington said, I heard the bullets whistle, and believe me, there is something charming in the sound. Now, how different would America's history have been if one of those bullets had been half an inch different in one direction or the other? James Flexer calls him the indispensable man because of the indispensable role he played in the founding of America. Washington later said, the miraculous care of providence protected me beyond all human expectation. Now, when you study history, you see the miraculous care of providence all over the place. These are just two examples of consequential leaders Israelite leaders that God surely protected to ensure certain outcomes. God is clearly very capable of shaping historical events to benefit his people. But the question also arises, just to go back to some of the quotes that we talked about at the beginning, what about the rest of the world? What about non-Israelites? How much does God intercede in their history? Well, there's a lot of evidence that it is more than we tend to think. For one, there's a lot of intersection between God's people and the Gentiles. When God wants to exalt his people or to punish his people, he often actively intervenes among other peoples, non-Israelite peoples, setting up this king or pulling down that leader or raising up this empire or giving that army a great victory or a humiliating defeat. But then there are also plenty of times where God works with other nations more directly, times where he exposes them to his truth by one of his servants in an effort to teach them and work with them, at times to convert them. But often it's just to plant seeds for when he will bring them up in a resurrection. The Bible talks about the fact that that all men will be raised in a resurrection, most of them in the second resurrection at the end of the millennium. It describes that in Revelation 20, toward the end of that chapter. But there are also plenty of other less obvious ways that God is involved in history. God wants all men 
to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And everything he is doing is entirely consistent with that goal. The history of humankind is the history of God preparing to restore his government to earth and to call all men into his family. So he is very attentive to what is happening here, not just among his chosen people. God is love, and he really does love all men, even those in the world, even those of of other nations, and he expresses that love in many, many ways. In this program, we're going to take a little dip in this vast ocean of human history, and we'll see God's role in it. This is a huge subject, but we'll at least start exploring this fascinating subject. Let's continue here in Deuteronomy 32. This is really an amazing chapter, Moses' parting song. And it really shows God's deep involvement with Israel, but it does show more than that. God wants us to know our history. This chapter says in verse 7, Deuteronomy 32, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. God wants us to know history because if you understand history properly, it helps you to know God. God is all over history. His fingerprints are all over it. He reveals himself in many ways throughout history. Now, notice this statement. This is an important big picture overview of God's role in history. Verse 8 of this chapter says, God divided to the nations their inheritance Mr. Armstrong said that that's speaking of land or geographical boundaries. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people. So what that's saying is that God put certain peoples in certain places, and he gave each of these groups of people an inheritance. That word inheritance, it's the same word that God used to talk about the promised land for Israel. Now, this says God gave land as an inheritance to all nations. That underscores the fact that God has a plan for all peoples, not just the nation of Israel. Now, in this chapter, Moses talks about the blessings and the advantages that God gave to Israel, but they rebelled and they rejected God. So you you see verses 20 and 21 say, and he said, I will hide my face from them. This is God talking. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So what is God talking about there? He's talking about opening up salvation to the Gentiles. He had offered salvation to the Israelites and He says, I'm going to open this up to other people. You didn't listen to me, uh, so I'm going to move on. 
Now, this is an instance where because his people failed, God opened up opportunities to those outside Israel, and he began working directly with them. And you can see Paul uh, quotes this passage in Romans 10, where, where salvation is opened up to the Gentiles. Let's look at a related passage in Acts 17. This is the Apostle Paul. He's traveling all over Greece. He's preaching anywhere and everywhere that people will listen to him. And he goes to Athens, right into the heart of all the philosophers of the day. Acts 17 and verse 18 says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So it's quite a scene portrayed here. Does God really have an interest in reaching these people? Well, think about it. He sent his apostle right into their midst, and Paul tried to persuade them. This passage goes on. Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So these men who believed in all these gods, Paul told them about the true God. He taught them about the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God who made all things, the God who has witnessed all human history. Notice what God inspired Paul to say here. Verse 26 says, And has made, this God has made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So he's saying from the beginning, God decided where he would put various peoples all over the earth, all nations of men. Again, it's not just talking about Israel here. And would God just leave them entirely alone? Was he completely hands off? Well, what does Paul say? Verse 27 says that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. That is a stunning statement. That says God wanted to help people find him if they should seek him. He's not far from every one of us, even these pagan Greeks God's presence is all over this earth, this planet where he is building his family, where he's working with a race of beings that he plans to invite into his eternal family. There are other Bible verses that talk about this. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Proverbs 15 and verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God sees it all. Jeremiah 23 says, God says, I'm not afar off. I'm right at hand. I fill heaven and earth. And then in verse 28, 
Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Paul quoted one of the Greek poets. He used their own writings to reach them. And he says, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What a message for these pagans. He continued, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. God is going to judge the whole world by Jesus Christ, every person who has ever lived. And then it says, so Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. And it even lists a couple of their names. So Paul was actually able to reach some of these people there in Athens. What does it tell you about God that he sent his apostle to Athens of all places with this message? Yes, God did cut off man at the Garden of Eden, but God has also put plans in place for how to deal with all of these people when they seek him and feel after him. God really does hope that they will find him. God is not far from anyone in this world if they would just open their eyes. How many seeds has God been planting throughout 6,000 years of human history across the continents, among all different races, in all ages, anticipating the day that he will raise them up in the second resurrection? We're talking about God intervening in human history. We're going to take a short break after which we'll look at the most stunning proof of God's deep involvement in the unfolding of events throughout history. We'll be right back. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. In the 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar II, also known as Nebuchadnezzar, was the most prestigious king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This is what historian Will Durant wrote about him. He became the most powerful ruler of his time in the Near East and the greatest warrior, statesman, and builder in all the succession of Babylonian kings. When Egypt conspired with Assyria to reduce Babylonia to vassalage again, Nebuchadnezzar met the Egyptian hosts at Charshemish and almost annihilated them. Palestine and Syria then fell easily under his sway, and Babylonian merchants controlled all the trade that flowed across Western Asia from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, there was that one clause there, Palestine fell easily under his sway, and in that clause you have the conquest of the kingdom of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. God used the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar to correct his people, Judah. 
This is an example of God exalting a Gentile empire to punish his rebellious people. So God was very involved in the rise of Babylon and the reign of Nebuchadnezzar specifically. This man worshipped Marduk, the God-in-chief of Babylon. But still God exalted him and he did something extraordinary with him. He put within the mind of this proud, pompous, pagan king a picture that told the story of nearly 2,500 years of human history in advance. He inspired a prophetic dream in the mind of this ruthless pagan ruler. And it's probably the greatest overview of human history in all literature. God had also inspired this man to take some Jewish boys captive in that siege of Jerusalem. And among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were servants of the true God. Now, these boys heard word about this dream, and they prayed that God would reveal its meaning. Daniel 2, verses 19 to 21 say, Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He removes kings and sets up kings. God removes and sets up kings, not just kings of Israel. This is a very specific way that God shapes history. God set up Nebuchadnezzar, and he gave him a mighty empire. And then he brought this young man before him with a powerful message. This is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. This is the dream, and we will tell you the interpretation thereof before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. God put that man in that office. Marduk didn't do that. The true God did that. Now, he's listening to this young man. Imagine the effect that this had on Nebuchadnezzar. He'd had this vivid and disturbing dream. None of his advisors and magicians and priests could tell him what it was. And here was this Jewish slave boy telling him exactly what he had dreamed in his own mind and then telling him exactly what it meant. And Daniel spells this out in Daniel 2, how this was a prophecy of four world-ruling Gentile empires that would dominate the earth right down to the time of Jesus Christ's second coming. This deeply impressed Nebuchadnezzar. He could see that his religion was fake and that Daniel's was real. Verse 47 in Daniel 2 says, The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing you could reveal this secret. And he promoted Daniel and his friends right to the top of Babylonian politics. Now that is very impressive. But it is nothing compared to the fact that God then brought that dream to life. Over the course of 25 centuries, 
He shaped world events. He removed kings and set up kings. He guided the decisions and actions of countless men. He directed the flow of wealth and resources. He determined the outcome of battles and wars to ensure that history unfolded in this precise sequence, exactly as it was depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. The Babylonian Chaldean head of gold being overtaken by the Persian breast and arms of silver, conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greco-Macedonian belly and thighs of brass, overcome by the beastly Roman Empire, which split into two legs of iron, two capitals, Rome and Constantinople, leading right down to ten toes, which depict 10 kings that are rising in our day to day. Again, this chapter, Daniel 2, is the greatest overview of human history in all literature. Now, God had wanted Israel and then Judah to be the dominant power in the world, but they rebelled. And so God raised up Babylon and he had them conquer Judah. And they were the first in a series of Gentile empires that would dominate the world in Israel's absence. Wow. How awesome is God that he could forecast that and then bring it to pass. God is deeply involved in history. He is deeply involved in world events. Gerald Flurry wrote in Daniel Unlocks Revelation, that image teaches the greatest lesson mankind could possibly learn. And what is that lesson? He wrote, God has given man 6,000 years to rule his own way, but he still makes certain that all events are shaped by his master plan. He forces events to shape the Daniel 2 image and work out his plan. He rules in the kingdom of men today. I really encourage you to read more about this in Daniel Unlocks Revelation. I'll read you a couple more quotes, but it's really worth studying into this. Mr. Fleury wrote, The Daniel 2 image didn't just evolve. How did these great world-ruling kingdoms from the time of Nebuchadnezzar down to the time we now live in take shape like that image? The only way that is possible is if God shaped and molded it to prove that he rules in the kingdom of men. God is teaching men even as they rebel. I love that. Think about that. Even in a world that is cut off from God and rebelling against him, God is so involved and he's teaching mankind. Even if they don't understand the lesson today, the day will come when they do understand. Mr. Fleury continues, they are learning that man cannot rule himself. Only God can bring men peace, prosperity, happiness, and joy. Then he says, God gave us that Daniel 2 image to humble people and help them to fulfill their potential. What an awesome purpose. Mr. Fleury says, God the Father wants a family. He loves the people of this world deeply. He wants to give them life, but they won't accept it. God knows that for most of them, it will take a lot of correction before they'll recognize his plan for them and accept an invitation into his family. This book and the whole Bible is about God's family plan ruled by the Most High, the Father who is head of his family. 
I'm going to give you four reasons why God intervenes in history. And this is the first. He ensures his prophecies are fulfilled. God uses prophecy to reveal himself to man. Herbert W. Armstrong talked about prophecy being proof of God, and it is irrefutable proof if people will just study into it. Again, God hopes that people will seek him and feel after him and find him. He's not far from every person on earth. But only the omnipotent God can say something will happen and then bring it to pass. There are some statements in the book of Isaiah that make this point explicitly. In Isaiah 41, God issues a challenge to anyone or any other God who would try. He says in verses 21 to 23, I'll read from the Farrar Fenton translation, Bring forth your plea, says the Eternal. Bring your reasons, demands Jacob's king. Approach, foretell things that will happen beforehand, inform what they are. We will lay to our heart and we will hear you teach future events. Tell events of the future and show you are gods. Be kind, fierce, or gracious, and then we shall fear. Now, in case you missed it, that is God being sarcastic. Nobody can shape history other than the one true God. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And then right after that challenging statement, he gives this specific prophecy, verse 11 of Isaiah 46, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executes my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Now, there are a number of commentaries that say that verse is referring to Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, the, the arms of silver in that Daniel 2 image. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, Cyrus, so called on account of the rapidity of his marches from the distant regions of Persia to pounce on his prey, the, the ravenous bird from the east, it, it calls him. And it mentions that the standard of Cyrus was a golden eagle on a spear. But this prophecy continues in even more detail uh, in Isaiah 44, and it's an earlier prophecy. He goes into more detail about this in an earlier prophecy. Isaiah 44, verse 24 says, I am the eternal that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens. And verse 28 says, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So, God says, Cyrus is my shepherd, and he says that he's going to inspire Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem, even rebuild the temple. So there's an indirect prophecy here that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, 
But God gets even more specific in the next chapter, Isaiah 45. It says, thus says the eternal to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Oh, this prophecy is described in detail in an article on thetrumpet.com written by Brad McDonald, the startling truth about one of history's greatest kings. It was in our November-December 2015 trumpet print edition. This is a detailed description here in Isaiah of how this Persian king, Cyrus, conquered Babylon. It talks about the materials these Babylonian gates would be made of, the fact that they would be left open, enabling Cyrus to get in and to conquer. This is exactly what happened. You can read historical accounts of this from Greek historians, Herodotus, Xenophon, from Roman historians. It's been confirmed by archaeological evidence. It's also written in other places in the Bible. But what's amazing about these passages about Cyrus in Isaiah is that this book was written about 150 years before Cyrus the Great was born. And Mr. McDonald, in that article, he shows how you can prove this. Critics say this had to have been written after Cyrus. The only trouble with that idea is, well, a copy of the entire book of Isaiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it dates to well before the Bible critics say it was compiled. Josephus recorded that King Cyrus actually read this prophecy about himself in the book of Isaiah. It's possible that Daniel showed that to him. Verse 4 of Isaiah 45 says, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. Can you imagine reading a prophecy that mentions you by name and tells you exactly what you're going to accomplish? God did just that. He said this would happen, and then he intervened in history to make sure it happened. And why? It says in verse 3, And I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. This proves God. It proves that he is the true God. And it helps you to get to know him. Again, we're talking about a Gentile king governing a world-ruling Gentile empire. I'm, I'm sure Satan would have loved to have prevented this from happening, that he did everything he could not to allow this man to fulfill God's prophecy. He sees this royal Persian family, the king of Anshan and the daughter of the king of Media. They have a child, and they name him Cyrus. I'm, I'm sure the devil was doing everything he could to convince them to name him Mortimer or Adolf or Bobby or anything other than Cyrus. But Cyrus became king, and he began succeeding in military campaigns and extending his power, and he amassed a tremendous empire. And thanks to this contact with God's prophets, he knew that God had blessed him. 
Here's what it says in Ezra 1 and verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the eternal God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This great king knew that God rules in the kingdom of men. And here we see how God used this man to enable some of his people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple just as he had prophesied in Isaiah 44. This points to a second reason God intervenes in history. He ensures his people have freedom to operate. There are many examples throughout history of God shaping events to make sure his people can do his work, even prosper and thrive. Sometimes he intervenes directly through his people. For example, you can look in Genesis 14 where you see Abraham destroying the four top leaders of the Assyrian Empire. This enabled Abraham and his descendants to live in Canaan without fear of the Assyrians. It also opened the way for Egypt to grow into a leading nation. Other times, like here in Ezra, God uses Gentiles to open doors for his people. There is an instance in the book of 2 Kings where Israel was under severe oppression from the kingdom of Syria, but then after evil King Jehoahaz prayed for relief, God answered by causing Assyria to invade Syria. So the Assyrian army swept in, they weakened Syria's power over Israel and Judah, and it was soon after that that Jeroboam II came to power and he recovered a lot of Israel's territory. You can also read our book, The True History of God's True Church. There are many examples recorded in this book of world events that caused the church to spread out and enabled them to to do God's work. You can definitely see that in the religious freedom that America's founders established, enabling God's work to flourish in America during the Philadelphia and Laodicean eras. All of that is explained in that book. It's fascinating history to study, and God certainly had a big hand in that. Now, the flip side to point two, why God intervenes in history, is that he strengthens enemy nations to punish his people. We've already talked about God raising up the Babylonians to conquer the kingdom of Judah. Before that, God raised the Assyrians to conquer the kingdom of Israel. Now, it's it's easy to say something like that, but how difficult is it to raise an empire? How many strings does God have to pull? How many factors must he influence to cause the combination of capable leadership and necessary resources and wealth and military prowess and technology and relative strength compared to neighboring powers and ambition and will, obedience in the people, national spirit in tens of hundreds of thousands of people, sometimes millions of people to all coalesce at the right time to make something like that happen. It sounds so simple. God raised the Assyrians. But raising up something so complex and multifaceted doesn't happen without a lot of determined effort. God is deeply involved in history. He is deeply involved in world events. 
You can read in Habakkuk 1 and verse 6, God says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. God is raising them up. Isaiah 10 and verse 5, God says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff of their hand and the staff in their hand is my indignation. This is a tool forged in the hand of God. It's like he's placed the steel on the anvil and he's hammering it into shape for his use. Why does he do that? Well, it's always to serve his ultimate purpose. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. It all fits in with the Father's master plan, his family plan. The fourth reason God intervenes in history is that he is laying seeds for the second resurrection. Think about this. God gave man 6,000 years to govern earth apart from him. And there have been a lot of communities and societies and kingdoms and empires during that time. And among all those people, you have a real range of those that are more influenced by God and closer to how it's going to be when God rules the earth, and then those that are more influenced by Satan. Those on the extreme of, of those that God has influence over, Israel and Judah, under righteous kings, you have on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end, you see how Satan inspires humans to devise abominable practices. You think of the Sumerians that were involved in just disgusting practices using snakes and spiders in bloody, sexualized religious ceremonies, human sacrifice. You think about the, the Canaanites that inhabited the promised land before God gave it to the Israelites. They were involved in terrible sins, child sacrifice, and so on. Probably one of the worst civilizations ever is the Aztecs of Central America from around 1300 to 1500 AD, just unbelievably barbaric, totally satanic religion on a terrifying scale. Cannibalism, scalping, human sacrifices that were eaten. If you want to know what Satan wants to do to human beings, what the world would look like if Satan had full reign, and just how evil and disgusting it would be, these cultures give you uh, an idea. Now, knowing that, when you look over the whole of human history, you have to marvel that there aren't a lot more cultures on the satanic end of that spectrum. Human history has had a lot of misery and suffering, but there've also been, there's been quite a lot of stability and some extraordinary accomplishments, and, and far more civility than you would expect. And that shows you the extent of God's influence. He has exerted considerable restraint on Satan the devil over the 6,000 years of human history. Now look at Romans 13, and Paul shows here that even though when God banished Adam from the garden, he stopped directly governing mankind as a whole, he was still involved in some important ways. That, that chapter, Romans 13, starts by saying, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
Now, that's an extraordinary statement. No power but of God. That's another way of saying the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Yes, man is cut off. God doesn't directly govern, but he rules, and he is involved in choosing who will rule over other men. Paul says, whosoever therefore resists the power resists the ordinance of God. Paul calls the ordinance of these human governments the ordinances of God. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to you for good. But if you will do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. In other words, if God didn't put some form of government in place, this world would look like Lord of the Flies. It would be like those those satanic civilizations throughout history. There would be a lot more of that. This says that these are ministers of God. Now, God's plan is to bring all men into his family, so he has ensured that there is some government in place in every nation for every people to help make life more livable. As men have lived and died for 6,000 years, God has been sowing seeds in their lives, knowing that he is going to bring them back up in a resurrection. He wants to save every last one of them. And on top of that, think about how often he's put his people in a position where they could have an influence over the leaders of this world. In ancient Egypt, God put Joseph as second in command. The prophet Daniel instructed King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he also instructed King Darius, the, the Persian king. king. The king of Persia married uh, a Jew named Esther. Another Persian king had Nehemiah as his bodyguard. Those philosophers in Athens that we talked about right there at the heart of the Greek empire, they received a personal visit from Paul. High up leaders in the Roman empire personally met and questioned Jesus Christ, the son of God. God didn't call those men. He didn't give them the Holy Spirit, but he is going to be working with them in their next waking moment. And he's already been preparing for that. In fact, he's been doing that with people throughout human history. He's been revealing himself through his creation. He's been teaching them through physical family, through work, through the experiences in their lives. He's been supplying blessings. He's been performing miracles and other demonstrations of his power. He's even given men hints of the truth. Think about this. God has names for every single one of those septillion stars, however many stars there are in the universe. So you can be sure he knows everything there is to know about every single one of the 108 billion people who have ever lived in human history. He is a father, and he yearns to save every last one of them. He is deep into his master plan to bring every one of them to the knowledge of the truth. God is not just an impartial, passive observer. 
God is actively watching what is happening on earth, all of its inhabitants, and he's measuring and discerning and considering. After all, these are future members of his family. He's intensely interested. Even those he is not yet calling into his church, he is scattering the seeds of his truth and watching how people respond. He's sanctifying some and setting them apart in preparation for a future calling. He's watching how people respect the conscience he's implanted within all men. He's keeping track of sins that he will later show them in the judgment to bring them to repentance. He's watching for qualities of character that he's going to be able to later use. He is blessing individuals and he's punishing individuals based on their personal choices. He's protecting them or he's allowing Satan to attack them. And on top of all of that, he is steering events to fulfill his prophecies and purposes. God is deeply involved in history. He is deeply involved in world events. And thank God that he is. As bad as things are in this world today, he is deeply involved. And he will soon rule this world, this whole world, and call all men into his eternal family. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Paul Johnson. The study of history is a powerful antidote to contemporary arrogance. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. Listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 